How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of our God abides forever. Before we begin our study of God's word this evening, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship, ready to study his word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have this evening to study your word. The privilege we have and the freedoms that we have in this nation have been secured on the fields of battle throughout previous decades where hundreds of thousands have given their lives in order for us to have this freedom. Father, we pray for the leadership that we have in Washington, for our president, for members of Congress, for military leaders, cabinet advisors, that you would give them wisdom and uh, skill in this war on terrorism. We pray for our military that you would uh, give them the ability to seek out the enemy, discover him, and to destroy the enemy. And we pray that you would continue to give this nation the freedom and security that we might not only send out missionaries and continue to teach your word throughout the world, but that we might also be able to stand as a support for Israel. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege to come and study your word, that your word helps us to understand the scope and flow of history. But above all, it helps us to understand who and what we are as human beings, the basic problems we we face that are all ultimately related to sin and the solutions that you have provided. Now, as we study the greatest of these solutions, our salvation, we pray that you would help us to understand more fully all that you have done that we might not neglect so great a salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's been a couple of weeks, three weeks, I think. We're going to lose all continuity at this rate with uh, the problems that we had with the plumbing last week, and then I was in uh, Southern California the week before. But uh, for those of you who uh, don't remember where we were, we are studying the doctrines of salvation. This is a, as I've stated before, a series. What I have in mind here is periodically over the coming years doing short 15 to 20 lesson series with a little bit more than a basic but not a in-depth theological study to deal with various issues in the different areas of salvation. So, I thought we would begin with salvation because this is one of the most important areas, and it is an area that I find so few people fully understand is our salvation. Uh, Bryce, you need to turn the volume down a little bit. I think that will help. So we begin by looking at the basic problem of salvation, our basic problem of man, which is sin. Sin is an all-inclusive term in many places of the Scripture, which just summarizes all of the entirety of the problem. But when you, especially some of you, I know from conversations, try to witness to 
to some or some of you engage in conversations with folks who think they can lose their salvation, one of the reasons I think people think they can lose their salvation is they don't fully comprehend the extent of the problem. We tend to just talk about sin as if it's personal sin, sin as if it's certain things that we have done, as opposed to a constitutional defect in man. What I mean by a constitutional defect is that every ounce of our being, every area of our soul, has been marred or warped, contaminated or or distorted by sin, so that although we are still in the image of God and still are in that shadow image of God, that image has been seriously misshapen so that man is no longer what man ought to be. There is a glimmer of it, and man is still in the image of God, therefore man has value. But in order for salvation to take place, this constitutional problem has to be completely revamped and resolved. And so sin is comprised of more than simply the problem of sin. The first area is the fact of sin. The fact of sin deals with the reality that man falls short of the glory of God. The second aspect of the barrier that we have studied is the penalty of sin. And here I'm speaking of the fact of a penalty that God is absolute righteousness and justice. And we have learned that what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God supplies. So that what the righteousness of God accepts, the justice of God can bless But what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God must condemn. And therefore, because man has violated the absolute perfect righteous standard of God, God in his justice must condemn man. So man is under a judicial penalty of sin. Now, that's an important word to understand, one that is a little bit foreign to our culture because we do not think and we are not taught to think in terms of these kinds of uh, of judicial categories. Everything in, for modern America has been reduced to psychological verbiage, and it's been reduced to experiential terminology and how we feel. But this has to do with courtroom terminology and what is legally true, not what is experientially true. And it, it has to do with the fact that man is under a a condemnation, a legal condemnation from the Supreme Court of Heaven due to the fact of sin. So there is the fact of a judicial penalty lodged against man. The third problem is the character of God. This is a Godward problem. It relates to the fact that man being, I mean, man being a sinner cannot have fellowship with God. God being perfect righteousness and perfect justice cannot have fellowship, cannot have a relationship with man, so something has to be done so that God can have that that relationship with man. The fourth problem is that of, and I have switched these in their order. At this point, the fourth problem is that of relative righteousness. Man lacks perfect righteousness. The minus indicates that he lacks this righteousness. Isaiah 64:6 6 says that all our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. It doesn't say our our works of unrighteousness. We need to be reminded of that again and again, that no matter how good we are, no matter how perfect we are, even if somebody were born today and were to exercise positive volition from the moment of birth until the day they died and never commit a sin, it's impossible, but just hypothetically, if somebody were born and never committed a 
a sin, a personal sin, they would still be condemned. We'll see that tonight. Because the basis of condemnation is not personal sin. It is Adam's original sin. We are born with this constitutional defect. And so because man is minus R, uh, he cannot have a relationship with God. God can have fellowship only with that which is uh, in complete agreement with his righteousness, his perfect standard. Fifth problem is the the uh, reality or the experience of the penalty of sin, which is spiritual death. Man is born spiritually dead, and without a human spirit, he can't have a relationship with God. And then the final problem is our position in Adam, our position in Adam. We are identified with him. He is our federal head. He was our representative. We are united with him genetically, and we are united with him in terms of his uh, federal headship of the human race. Therefore, because of that, we have a basic problem in that in Adam all die, the Scripture teaches. So the pro- all of these problems comprise that one problem of sin, and they are all resolved at the cross. So the cross is not a simple, it can be in gospel presentations, but the reality is the gospel is not as simple as Jesus just paid for your sins. I mean, the, that, that's enough to get saved. But what I mean is that too often we, we stay there. We stay with this elementary understanding of the gospel. And so because we don't understand the complexity of the sin problem and we don't understand the complexity of the grace solution, we think that somehow this process is reversible. But once we understand the complexity of the salvation solution, we realize that this isn't a reversible process, that once you're saved, there's so many things that take place at salvation that you can't even uh, think about the fact that you can lose your salvation. The first area that we have studied in terms of the sin solution and the solution to the first brick, which is the fact of sin, is unlimited atonement. Unlimited atonement. And we looked at the fact that there were three elements to unlimited atonement. The, the first is the element of substitution. The second is the aspect of atonement itself. And the third is the aspect of substitution. Or excuse me, I, I think I got that reversed. The first was the aspect of substitution. The second is the aspect of, uh, th- that it is uh, atoning. And the third is the aspect of its extent, that it is unlimited. It is for all mankind and for all sin in human history. We saw that to understand the atonement, for those of you teaching prep school, you need to teach these doctrines in terms of how they are anchored in Old Testament revelation. All these doctrines, whether you start with God, you begin to learn some things about God, his sovereignty, that he's creator, right there in Genesis chapter 1. But every doctrine that we think of in the New Testament is anchored in some way to a historical event in the Old Testament that is designed to portray this abstract theology in a very concrete manner. I think part of the reason for that is that in the Old Testament, believers did not have the Holy Spirit living inside them. So without the Holy Spirit to help teach and explain and understand these more abstract doctrines, God gave the Jews these concrete uh, pictures, these these visual aids in order to understand the principles that uh, of doctrine that he was going to uh, perform in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So the doctrine of atonement has its historical root in the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur. 
the Day of Atonement in Israel's uh, ritual calendar. And once a year, the high priest would go into the uh, holy place and then pass the veil into the Holy of Holies where he would place a bowl of blood that was collected from a lamb without spot or blemish and he would place that on the top of the box in the holy place called the Ark of the Covenant. Here's a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. It is a box uh, made of acacia wood that had a lid that was called the mercy seat. On top of that lid you have the two uh, cherubs and the blood is placed there as a sign that that God's holiness and righteousness are satisfied. That's what we're going to study this evening on the doctrine of propitiation. But in terms of atonement, you have uh, the picture here and the key terms in the in the Old Testament for atonement is the word kafar, which in one of its forms is kapur in the term yam kapur, and kafar means. Uh, has the idea of covering, but what, what has been discovered in lexical studies in recent years is that the primary idea is not just covering, it's cleansing. And you go back and you study the Septuagint, which was the Jewish translation of the old, uh, the Hebrew Old Testament when they translated it into Greek. The primary word they used to translate the kapar word group was the Greek word katharizo, meaning to cleanse, emphasizing the fact of positional cleansing at the point of salvation. So atonement has to do with the cleansing from sin and the solution to the sin problem. It is an overall term that's not used in the New Testament. It's only used in the Old Testament, and it's an overall term describing the solution of Christ on the cross. It is pictured by the sacrifice of the lamb, Exodus 12:5, that the lamb should be an unblemished male, and this is fulfilled in the in the uh, antitype of Jesus Christ uh, when John the Baptist said, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world," in John 1:29. Then the next part of this doctrine was the doctrine of substitution, and in substitution there are two words that are key. Uh, when I did this, I was using a different computer, so the fonts didn't come over in Greek in the Greek. But they are huper and anti, and these two prepositions indicate substitution. And they are seen in two key passages, Matthew 20:28, 20, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for or as a substitute for many. And then in Romans 5, 6, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died as a substitute for the ungodly. And then in Romans 5, 7, and 8, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps as a substitute for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us, So we have the idea of atonement that is a complete payment of sin. On the Day of Atonement, it was a complete payment for the whole nation and the concept of huper and anti that is substitutionary. 1 Corinthians 15.3 is another key passage. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died as a substitute for our sins according to the Scripture. It's important to understand this substitutionary issue. And then I pointed out 
that substitution is necessary for there to be true unlimited atonement, that Christ died as a substitute. He actually pays the penalty for everyone. It's not hypothetical, which is one view of explaining the atonement, uh, one view of explaining unlimited atonement. It is actual. Jesus Christ pays the penalty so that sin isn't the issue. Sin isn't going to be brought up again. When people are in the lake of fire, if you go to somebody in the lake of fire and say, why are you here? They're not going to say, well, because Jesus didn't pay for my sins. They're going to say, no, I paid, he paid for my sins, but I rejected it. Now, in unlimited atonement, we believe that Jesus paid the penalty for every sin in human history and for every individual. Key passages are First Timothy 4.10, where we're told that we have our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Also, Second Peter 2.1, where these false teachers were denying the master who bought them, that they were not saved, but they were denying the one who paid the price, who redeemed them. And so that solves the sin problem. Then we have the second problem, the fact of sin. And that was resolved in the redemption aspect, the redemption aspect that paid the penalty. When you think of redemption, you need to think of the word payment. And there were a couple of key words in the Old Testament. Ga'al is the uh, second of the two, pada and ga'al we studied, that God is called the redeemer, the go'el, which is a form of the word ga'al, the noun form where God said that he would redeem Israel with an outstretched arm. That refers to the Exodus event. So when you think of atonement, you think of the Day of Atonement. That's the illustration for teaching atonement. When you think of redemption, you think of the two things, the Exodus event, number one, and number two, think of the book of Ruth and Boaz redeeming Ruth as the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. And it is in those two two things that we understand grace and we understand God's provision of uh, a payment for the penalty of sin. Then the third brick, that's where we are now, and our, this sixth lesson is the solution to the problem of God's character. That God's character is a righteous God. He rejects man. He, his righteousness emphasizes his standard. In his righteousness, he has an absolute standard of perfection, and he cannot have a relationship with anyone, any creature, that does not meet that absolute standard of his perfection. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes. So when the righteousness of God rejects fallen man, the justice of God must condemn man. So how is this problem going to be resolved? And it is through the doctrine of propitiation, or expiation. Now, there's a lot of confusion over this word expiation, which I'll address in a minute. But just to let you know, the, as far as my studies have gone, it's a word that's not used much in the Scriptures. And I've looked it up in various English dictionaries, and it is fundamentally a synonym for the term propitiation. It is fundamentally a synonym for the term propitiation. So what is propitiation? Not a term that is used frequently in everyday language. Point number one is a definition. It is that aspect of the saving work of God through the substitutionary spiritual death of Jesus Christ on the cross, whereby the justice and righteousness of God are satisfied concerning the sins of mankind. 
So that's the key word when you think of propitiation, think of satisfaction. It is that aspect of the saving work of God through the substitutionary spiritual death of Jesus Christ on the cross, whereby the justice and righteousness of God are satisfied concerning the sins of mankind. The problem is God's righteousness rejects man. God's justice must condemn him. So somehow his righteous standard must be satisfied so that his justice can then bless man by justifying man and saving man. The key terms that are used are in the uh, Hebrew, kaporeth, which notice it, the key, remember in, in, um, in, uh, Hebrew, there are no, there, there are no, uh, vowels like we have in English. You have primarily consonants, and the vowel points were added later, so you have the key consonants here, K, P, and R. And, uh, then the final T is a noun ending. So it comes from that root KPR, which is kafar, which is the word, same word for atonement, so it's ready to, related to atonement, and it is the term that it describes the mercy seat. So Kaporeth came to mean the mercy seat, the place on, that the high priest would place the blood on the Day of Atonement. The Greek term is helasmos and helasterion. Helasmos and helasterion. Helasterion means to propitiate, to expiate, to appease, or to satisfy. And it is looking at the the mercy seat is the place where God's justice and righteousness are fully satisfied and by the perfect sacrifice. Now, the sacrifice that of the lamb, of course, did not, the lambs of bulls and goats can't take away sin, but it was a picture of that sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, the term, second point here, the term for propitiation is sometimes used or confused with the English word expiation. In English versions, the term expiate is often used to translate the same word group of, based on the Hebrew word kafar. So you have this, this Hebrew word we'll just put the basic trilateral root up here, kafar. K, P-H, sometimes it's a hard P, R. Now, in some, when, when the Jews translated it into the Septuagint, they translated it with the Greek word helasterion. Now, in English translations, this is sometimes translated with the word propitiate, and other times it is translated with the English word expiate. So these two words, propitiation and expiation, are synonymous in that they both translate the Greek kafar, I mean the Hebrew kafar and the Greek hilasterion. The term expiation in English means, if you look it up in the dictionary, it means to make amends or to atone. So theologically, the term expiation has come to emphasize the means by which reconciliation or atonement is made, and that is specifically related to the concept of propitiation. Now we have to get into the 
Old Testament uh, symbolism. And I always think this is this is has always been one of my favorite understandings. Is it's so concrete to understand atonement when you look at the the Ark of the Covenant. The Old Testament symbolism is the mercy seat. And Exodus, the key passage is Exodus 25, 17 to 22. Exodus 25, 17 to 22, where God gives the instructions to Moses on, on building the, uh, the mercy seat. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. So the lid is of pure gold, two and a half cubits wide, two and a half cubits long, which a cubit is about 18 inches. So we're talking about, about 45 inches about 45 inches long, which is almost four feet long, and one and a half cubits wide, which is about 27 inches. So that's about two, two, a little over two and a half feet wide. So it's about four feet by two feet. And then in verse verse 18, we read, And you shall make two cherubim, or two cherubs, make them of, of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. So you then put the two angels, they're cherubs, and every picture I see of the cherubs have them with just two wings. And yet the picture you have in, uh, in Revelation chapter four is that they have, uh, more than two rings, wings. They have, they have four wings and in some cases six wings. So this is a mark of their rank among the angels. Verse, uh, 19. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end, and you shall make the cherubs of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. So everything is joined together. Verse 20, the cherubs shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubs are to be turned toward the mercy seat. So that means they are to look at the mercy seat. Their gaze is specifically directed down onto the mercy seat where the action is going to take place. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give to you. Actually, there were three things inside the, inside the ark, inside the box. The box was made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. The mercy seat itself is pure gold. The picture of the Acacia wood covered with gold is a picture of the hypostatic union. The wood represents the humanity of Christ, and the pure gold represents the undiminished deity of Christ. But when you get to the point where you're looking at the mercy seat, the reason it's pure gold is here we're dealing with the actions of the justice of God. There's no humanity involved at all with the actions or the resolution of the justice of God. Now, inside the box are three things. First of all, there's the tablets of the law as mentioned here in Exodus 25:21, And this is to symbolize the fact that this is God's absolute standard and Israel broke the law. They violated the law right off the bat while Moses was still up on, on, on Mount Sinai getting the law. The, the Jews are getting bored because he's up there for 40 days and they're getting bored and they're, uh, uh, decide that God's destroyed Moses, so they go to uh, Aaron to try to convince him to build an idol that they can worship the idol. So they're violating the first two commandments before Moses even gets down off the off the mountain. And so the the first uh, first item in the box represents uh, Israel's failure and Israel's disobedience to the law. The second item 
was Aaron's rod. Aaron's rod was a, a scepter. It was a sign of his authority as the high priest. And what took place was a rebellion by the people against Aaron's priesthood. And so the priests who were in, in rebellion against him, who were in contention for the position of high priest, uh, were to put their, their rods, along with Aaron's rod, inside the uh, holy place, inside the Holy of Holies. And the next morning they would be taken out, and God would show which of these men he selected to be the high priest. And so the next morning when they went in, they took out these staffs, these scepters made of dead wood. Aaron's rod had begun to sprout green limbs and leaves, indicating that God was bringing life where there was death. Always you see these these images in the Scripture where it is God who brings life out of death. And so that indicated that God had selected Aaron, but the the reason his rod is in the ark is to remind the people that they had rejected God's grace provision of a priesthood and grace provision of leadership. And then the third item inside the box was the uh, uh, an urn or a jar that contained some of the manna. The manna was the was the bread, the wafers that appeared miraculously each morning as the Jews went through the wilderness and it tasted like coriander seed and they got tired of eating it on a regular basis because they wanted something else. Some people think it tasted like a honey donut, but if all you ever had to eat was a honey donut, you might get tired of that after a while. Some of you would get tired of it before others. I don't know that I would ever get tired of it. And and no, I haven't made it over to the new Krispy Kreme in Hartford yet. But the days are growing short. So um, anyway, they got tired of eating that every day, so they began to complain against God. This was God's grace provision. They didn't work for it. They didn't earn it. God graciously provided all the nutrition that they needed so that they could make it through the wilderness, and yet they began to grumble and complain. They wanted to go back to Egypt for leeks and garlics. If they had been from Texas, they would have wanted to go back for jalapeno peppers or something with a little spice in it. But, you know, they just didn't want this bland food. And so uh, they were complaining and grumbling to God. And as a result, they went through some divine discipline. And the manna is placed in the ark to demonstrate, that, to remind the Jews that they had sinned in their rejection of God's logistical grace Provision. So the contents represent uh, Christ bearing our sins on the cross. In the ark, you have the cherubs looking down on the mercy seat. The mercy seat covers the sin, the, the items that represent sin, inside the box. And this is a picture of the fact that Jesus Christ is going to pay the penalty for sins. The, there is the... the uh, teaching of substitutionary atonement, the teaching of cleansing, the teaching of covering, and the teaching that holiness and righteousness is represented by the cherubs are satisfied on the day of atonement by the sacrifice. So all of this is a picture that foreshadows what would actually take place on the cross. Now the key words, the the key verses rather in the New Testament for propitiation are found in Romans 3.25, Hebrews 2.17, 1 John 2.2, 2, and 1 John 4.10. And we'll take a look at each of those. 
In Romans 3.25, we're told in reference to Christ, whom God displayed publicly, Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. And I think that should be translated as an, as an instrumental uh, dative by means of his blood. His blood was the instrument by which God's wrath, God's justice and righteousness are satisfied. God displays it publicly as a propitiation or satisfaction by his blood. And the blood is not to be understood as a literal term. First of all, because the penalty for sin was not physical death, it was spiritual death. And what you have is is in the Old Testament sacrifices, the blood was analogous and looked forward to and foreshadowed the death of Christ on the cross. The blood, the term blood of Christ in the New Testament is a physical uh, metaphor or analogy that represents the spiritual death of Christ on the cross. When Adam died, when Adam ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he died spiritually. So that spiritual death is the penalty for sin. Physical death is a consequence, one of many consequences to, to, uh, to spiritual death. And so since the penalty must be in kind, Jesus Christ had to die spiritually on the cross as a substitute for us. So his spiritual death is a substitutionary spiritual death on the cross. It took place between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when the skies were darkened and when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was only after that time that Jesus said that it was finished to tell us die. T-E-T-E, notice the accents on the second syllable, so it's to tell us die. T-E-T-E-L-E-S-T-A-I. It is finished. It was finished before he died physically. Therefore, the blood of Christ, the term blood of Christ, cannot be a reference to his physical death, but is a reference to his spiritual death. Now, not, that doesn't mean his physical death wasn't necessary. It was. He had to demonstrate that on the cross, he not only solved the problem of spiritual death, but he solved the greatest consequence of spiritual death, and that is physical death. Furthermore, through his physical death, burial, and resurrection, God demonstrated that he accepted the substitutionary spiritual death of Jesus Christ on the cross. So by emphasizing the spiritual aspect of the substitutionary atonement, it's not to diminish the physical death, but to put the emphasis in the correct place, and it's not to deny any emphasis on the spiritual death. Some people, it seems, still have problems with that, even in uh, Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich, the standard uh, Greek dictionary, even indicates that the term blood of Christ is a figure of speech. So I'm always amazed how uh, people do not have an, uh, an understanding or an accurate understanding of literal translate, literal interpretation. Literal interpretation doesn't mean you have to take everything uh, literally. I used to have a great slide. One of these days I'll find it again. I used to have a great slide that a friend of mine drew of, uh, of the description of the... Uh, of the uh, the lover in the Song of Solomon, where Solomon talks about her hair is like a flock of goats going up Mount Gilead. 
And so the picture was all these goats coming off of her head. And that her neck was like a, that like the Tower of David. And she had all these bricks and stones on her neck. And that her cheeks were like pomegranates. You know, these two bulging pomegranates on her cheeks. You see, the Bible is filled with figures of speech. And so, but we interpret them within the normal use of language. We all properly, anybody who's a native speaker of a language understands how these idioms are used. So the term blood of Christ is not a literal term, but is a term that describes the spiritual substitutionary uh, death of Christ. So it is by means of his blood, by means of his spiritual substitutionary death, that he is a satisfaction to God through, through faith. And that is how it is applied to us, is through faith, by putting our faith alone, our trust alone, relying solely on the work of Christ on the cross. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. That's the point. On the cross, God demonstrates that he can't just say, oh, well, I know man didn't really meet it. He's in my image. I really want to have a relationship with him. God has to demonstrate that a righteous standard must be satisfied. So it's a demonstration of his righteousness because in the forbearance of sin, forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. He put a hold on judging sins in the Old Testament from the time of Adam to the time of Christ. Those sins are being overlooked temporarily until Jesus could come and die on the cross and pay the penalty for them. So because God knew that in his plan Jesus would pay the penalty for those sins, that any any reaction or any response rather from the justice of God was was held off or postponed until the death of Christ on the cross. Second passage dealing with propitiation is found in Hebrews two seventeen. Hebrews two seventeen, where we read, Therefore he, that is Jesus Christ, had to be made like his brethren in all things. That takes us back to the idea of the goel. Now what I want you to see here is that even though we distinguish the different elements of salvation, atonement, propitiation, redemption, they are all intertwined and interconnected. And it is especially the first three, the concept of atonement, unlimited atonement, the concept of of uh, uh, redemption, and the concept of propitiation that are all intertwined and interconnected. And we'll come back and make a, make a point on that before we wrap up this evening. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. That's the concept of the Goel, that he had to be a kinsman redeemer. He had to be true humanity. God as God could not die in man's place. It had to be a human being that paid the penalty for sin. He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. As a priest, he had to partake of the same nature as those whom he represented. So he had to be made like his brethren in all things. That relates to the incarnation at the birth of Christ so that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest. That uh, uh, applies to his work on the cross and his present function as our high priest in heaven. 
a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This was his primary function. Remember, the analogy goes to the high priest in Israel who takes the bowl of blood into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And that's the picture. That is his high priestly role, the starting point of it, when he paid the penalty for our sins and makes propitiation for the sins of the people. And since the since the high priest of Israel made propitiation on the Day of Atonement for the entire nation, irregardless of whether there was a person out there who believed it or not or accepted it or not, that covered the sins of the whole people for the next year. It was unlimited propitiation. And this is what is emphasized in 1 John 2, 2, that he himself, that is Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So he is a true substitutionary in terms of his propitiation for everyone, believer and unbeliever. This is a real substitution. And then it's mentioned again, Propitiation is mentioned again in 1 John 14. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So that love is the motive. Love is that which moved God to send his son to be the the, uh, satisfaction, to satisfy his justice. So once again we see, as we've studied so many times, that when you deal with the integrity or the core virtues of God, his love cannot be set apart or set over against his justice. You'll always run into people who say, well, how can a loving God send his creatures to hell? And we always have to reverse that by saying, well, I'll answer that question after you tell me how a righteous God can let a sinner into heaven. Don't let an unbeliever set the agenda by his misunderstanding of love. So it's God's love that works together with his justice so that to solve the problem of his justice, his love moves him to make the decision, the, the proper decision, sending his son to die on the cross for our sins. So that solves the problem of the, his character, and then we move into the next section, which is solving the problem of our lack of righteousness. Now, I want you to notice something. As we shift gears here in this chart, we've had unlimited atonement, redemption, and propitiation. All of these have an unlimited aspect. They apply to every single human being. Every single human being has had his sins paid for by the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Every single human being has been purchased from the slave market of sin, redemption. It's unlimited. Every single human being has been propitiated. Jesus Christ is a propitiation not for our sins only, but for the whole world. Okay, that is true for every single person. But the next three elements that we're going to see, imputation and justification in relationship to regeneration, in relationship to our lack of righteousness, regeneration, which solves the problem of spiritual death, and being in Christ instead of in Adam, all take place only when the individual puts his faith alone in Christ alone. So the first three are solved and paid for at the cross and are real for every single human being, but that's not enough. You see, those first three only solve the first three aspects of the barrier 
The next three that we're going to talk about are actually four, imputation, justification, regeneration, and, and our identification with Christ. Those all occur only at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone. And you can't get into heaven unless all the problems are solved and applied to the individual. That's why we must say that sin was paid for at the cross. It was actually paid for at the cross and fully paid for at the cross. Now, in terms of minus R, how does that solution work? Through two doctrines, imputation and justification. Imputation and justification. Now, the problem with communicating on doctrines, on using terms like imputation and justification, is that in today's audience, these words are rarely used, and in the case of a word like justification, it's not used with in everyday language with the same meaning as this word has theologically. And you often see this in a trite little phrase where people come along and they say, well, justification means just as if I had never sinned. And probably all, every one of you have heard this, but the reason it's not true is because it's not just as if I had never sinned. See, my sin is not removed. I am not made righteous. I'm still a sinner. You're still a sinner. You still have a sin nature that has the propensity to every bit of evil that it was, that, that it could do before you were saved. You're not made righteous. You are declared righteous. It's totally different concept. Those of you who come out of a Roman Catholic background, see, in Roman Catholicism, this is this is the the point of attention here, is that what happens in Roman Catholicism is you are made righteous through taking part in the various uh, the the various um, uh, rituals. As you take place, take part in mass. As you take part in, in, um, in these things, you receive righteousness, so that you get more and more righteous until eventually you're supposed to have enough righteousness to be able to be saved. Trouble is, they never know how much is enough, so you never know if you're saved. And once you're saved, you don't know if you're if you're going to keep it, and you get it only by participating in the sacraments. So. Justification does not mean just as if I had never sinned. What's our definition? Our definition is that this is the action of the justice of God, whereby either condemnation or blessing is assigned, credited, or attributed to a human being. It is the the action of the justice of God whereby either condemnation or blessing is assigned, credited, or attributed to a human being. This specifically relates to the term imputation. To understand justification, you have to begin with imputation. Imputation is the action of the justice of God, whereby either condemnation or blessing is assigned, credited, or attributed to a human being. And there are two categories of imputations real imputations, and judicial imputations. There's your definition on the on the overhead. Real imputations and judicial imputations. Now, I like to tell this story here because I think somebody out there in, uh, who's listening to this on tape or over the Internet is going to uh, learn something here. I love the story about when this church was looking for a pastor before I came. And they had a 30 or 40 question questionnaire that they were sending out to the candidates. 
And one of the questions on that questionnaire was the question. Now, you guys take note of this. Was the question about what what are the two types of imputations to describe the, the, the different kinds of imputations. Looking for an answer, describing real imputations and judicial imputations, their di- differences in which imputations are real and which imputations are judicial. You have to realize that with the exception of only one systematic theology that I know of, this kind of distinction is not made in any systematic theology anywhere that is read in any seminary. The only person who makes this distinction is Lewis Perry Chafer, who was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary. And unfortunately, there's no longer a, a theology professor at Dallas Seminary requiring Chafer to be read. Therefore, if you ask this question, unless they have sat under this ministry, or they have uh, been influenced or taught by Pastor Theme, or one of only a handful of people out there who have been influenced by uh, Dr. Chafer, they're not thinking precisely enough. They haven't been taught to think precisely enough. They're not even going to understand this. And I'm telling you, I've run this by guys who should know this, who've gone to Dallas and who have have even been brought up under Pastor Themes Ministry, and they didn't know this was in Chafer. You know, Chafer is eight volumes long. I mean, I read the whole thing before I went to seminary. I read the whole thing while I was going through seminary, and I've read a lot of it since. But every time I read it, it's like I'm reading it the first time. There's such, there's so much gold in Chafer's systematic theology. So you have to kind of realize that we live in an age today when, unfortunately, many seminary students are not getting that great of an education. Two categories of imputations, real imputations and judicial imputations. There are uh, four real imputations. The first is Adam's original sin to the sin nature at birth. Now, what makes a real imputation a real imputation is that something is credited to a person which truly belongs to him. There is an affinity between what is imputed and what is re- and, and that to which it is imputed. There is a likeness between the two. So the first real imputation is Adam's original sin to the sin nature. There's an affinity between sin, Adam's original sin, and the sin nature. That's in Romans 5, 12 to 21. The second real imputation is eternal life to the human spirit. Eternal life to the human spirit, 1 John 5, 11 and 12. Eternal life to the human spirit. Third, the third real imputation is the imputation of blessings in time to the righteousness of God in us. And that's what we're going to see in our study is that blessings come to us not because we obey God's word or disobey God's word or judgment because we disobey. Blessings are not due to the fact that that, uh, we pray, that we go to Bible class, that we study his word or memorize his word. Blessings in time are always related to the perfect righteousness of Christ in us, not due to what you do. If it's due to what you do, then it's works. Now, somebody says, well, when I do all of those things, then God blesses me. Yes, but not because you did those things. When you do all of those things and we live the Christian life, we grow and mature, and because we are maturing, God then distributes blessings to us because now we're mature enough to handle the blessing. You're not going to go out and give the keys to a brand new BMW to your six-year-old kid. Why? 
He does, he, you can give it to him. You can put his name on the title deed. But at the age of six, he doesn't have the capacity to handle the blessing. Now, it's still his. But you're not going to give him the keys until he's 30 or 35 or 40. Till he's ready. If you give it to him too soon, it'll destroy him. That's the way the, the, these blessings operate. God gives us the blessings only when we've reached the maturity to handle them, not because we do certain things. Fourth, blessings in eternity are then uh, given to the resurrected believer. These are the four real imputations. Now, there are two judicial imputations. A judicial imputation occurs when the justice of God credits something to someone that does not where there is no affinity, where there is no correlation between that which is imputed and that which is received. For example, or, or there's no harmony, there's no agreement uh, between the imputation and the object of the imputation. For example, the imputation of our personal sins to Christ on the cross. There's no affinity between our personal sins and the perfect perfectly righteous Jesus Christ. So the first judicial imputation is the imputation of our personal sins to Christ on the cross, Romans 8, 31 to 32. And secondly, Christ's perfect righteousness to the believer at the point of salvation, Romans 4, 3 through 4, and 2 Corinthians 5, 21. So there are six imputations in all. Now, some of you may have been taught that, that there is an imputation of soul life uh, to to the believer at birth, I don't see so the I see that as an impartation. See, an imputation is a technical financial term where something is credited to someone. My soul was not credited to me; it was actually placed in me. So you see, there's a difference between an imputation, which is the assignment of something to someone. And it's a it's a it's a financial term, and an impartation where the soul is imparted to the biological life of an individual. So I do not include that as part of imputations. You have four real imputations: Adam's original sin to the sin nature, eternal life to the human spirit, blessings in time to the righteousness of God in us and blessings in eternity to the resurrected believer, and two judicial imputations, our personal sins to Christ on the cross, and Christ's perfect righteousness to the believer at the point of salvation. Point number two, Philemon's, or this is really, if you go back over your notes, point number one was a definition, point two was real imputations, point three is judicial imputations, and point Four, it tells, shows us the secular usage of the term. Secular usage of the term in Philemon 1.18. But if he has wronged you in any way, Paul wrote to Philemon uh, concerning Onesimus, or if he owes you anything, charge that to my account. Credit that to my account. Now, over the course of time, point number six, there have been, uh, uh, there's been a lot of debate about the first real imputation, which is Adam's original sin to the sin nature. Most of you are familiar with the battle between Calvinism and Arminianism, and here's a picture of Jean Calvin, 
who lived from 1509 to 1564. And Calvin did not know of Arminius. Jacobus Arminius was a Dutch theologian. Notice he's not born until 1559. Uh, He was a devout follower of Calvin's. But he recognized that there were some some uh, certain things in the system that Calvin's followers promoted that were not necessarily consistent with Calvin himself. Uh, so Arminius moved in a little, little different direction. His followers went even further. Calvin's followers went way too far in one direction. Arminius's followers went too far in another direction. But under the system known as Arminianism, man was not seen as guilty because of Adam's sin. Calvin taught, and the Reformers taught, as is correct, that man was guilty because of Adam's sin. But you see, Arminianism really went back to an earlier controversy. To understand the controversy between Calvinism and Arminianism, you have to go back to the 4th century A.D. and understand the conflict between Augustine and a British monk, by the name of Pelagius. And Pelagius taught that he was a monk in the 5th century who substituted the word imitation for imputation. He did not teach that, that we received Adam's sin, but that we imitated Adam, that every human being is actually born just like Adam was created, with pure free will, no taint from anybody else's sin, and could theoretically live to adulthood without ever sinning. He argued that God created every soul directly and that it was innocent and untainted by Adam's original sin and nobody else was guilty of Adam's sin other than Adam. Now, this is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches, in fact, in theology, there are two views, and they're both true. I remember when I was in seminary being taught, well, you're either a federal, have a federal view or a seminal view. The federal view was that Adam is the federal or representative head of the human race, and therefore because Adam sinned, the entire race sinned because of Adam's position as the head of the race. The seminal view, and this is a seed, this word seminal means seed, is that, that because we're physically related to Adam, his sin is passed on, uh, physically. Adam wasn't just our representative, but there is a, a seminal presence, a physical connection to Adam. And this is based on the statement in Hebrews 7, 9, and 10, where we're told that Levi paid tithes, uh, to Melchizedek. Now, Levi was one of the sons of Jacob. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons, one of whom is Isaac. I mean, one of whom is Levi. Now, that's about 200 years after Abraham, and yet Hebrews 7 says that Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek. How does that happen? Because he is seminally present in Abraham, his great-grandfather. Now, the, both of these are true, though. See, this is the problem in theology is too often they, they separate into two opposing camps when both elements are true and can be demonstrated from the Scripture. Adam is both our federal head and our representative, and as such, we receive the imputation of Adam's original sin. But the sin nature is passed on genetically from father to son through the male of the species, so that the sin nature has a physical genetic, is a physical genetic home that receives the imputation of Adam's original sin. As a result of that, there is both a federal and a seminal relationship to 
uh, Adam. This is what we see in passages like Romans 5, 12, and 13. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is a law. That has to do with, with personal sin. Now, I want to skip a couple of these passages and look at two events. Well, we're running out of time. I'm, rather than skimming through this, I'll come back next time and we'll wrap up uh, imputation and justification and our study of Romans 5 uh, in the next class with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening to once again understand the uh, many dimensions of our so great salvation. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and that we may be able to better communicate the good news of salvation to those to whom we witness. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.